This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Pollen. Do you want to start uncontrollably sneezing every time you walk outside? Try Pollen today. Welcome to another bonus episode of the Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. You can subscribe to the Sweaty Penguin on Apple, Spotify, Google, Podcast Addict, wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to leave a five-star rating and a review, and you will get a shout-out at the end of the show. The other way to get a shout-out? Join our Patreon. For as little as five bucks a month, you'll also get access to some Sweaty Penguin swag, exclusive bonus content, and more. So, it's the first bonus episode of Season 3, and you know what that means. We have got Christian Alberga and Matt Gratkow here for a bipartisan conversation about a previous episode. As always, both of them are new to these topics, so you'll get to hear their initial reactions and see what kind of common ground they find. This week, Christian picked the episode, and he chose... Episode 30, International Accountability. So go listen to episode 30 if you haven't already, and then come back here because we've got a fun conversation for you. But first, let's break down some of the latest environmental news. Last week, Hawaii became the first U.S. state to declare climate change an emergency. And you know it's bad when a state that's basically half-volcano is stressed about anything else. Trillions of cicadas across 15 states that have been underground for 17 years are expected to emerge in the next few weeks to make a lot of noise, have a lot of sex, and then die. Which is weird, because I thought Coachella was cancelled this year. New York City's Lincoln Center has announced plans to cover the plaza in grass, which was exciting until you read that they're actually using an artificial turf called Sin Lawn that's made mostly out of plastic. Seriously, what did they think people meant when they said they wanted green space? I mean, if all you were trying to do was make Lincoln Center the color green, just cover it with all the mold from your apartments. Under a new Orange County, Florida law that allows waterways the right to file a lawsuit, a developer is being sued by a group of streams, lakes, and marshes, including none other than the Orlando-adjacent Lake Mary Jane. To make matters worse, Lake Heroin and Lake Cocaine are also lawyering up. A new study in Nature finds that if global temperatures rise to 3 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, which is projected to happen by the year 2100 based on current government policies, ice loss from Antarctica would be irreversible on multi-century timescales. That's a big deal. The only things that are irreversible on multi-century timescales are Shakespeare's popularity, the Detroit Lions losing streak, and the act of accidentally liking someone's Instagram picture from four years ago. New research finds endangered succulent species have been poached and smuggled out of South Africa at extreme levels recently. But hey, at least all the succulents have their own names, Instagram accounts, and college dorm room windowsills now. Florida has announced a plan to help control invasive reptile species by requiring people who own green iguanas to get their pets microchipped. The 49 other states, meanwhile, decided to just not have people own pet iguanas. A recently concluded survey by UC San Diego discovered that a chemical dump site off the coast of California has 25,000 barrels of DDT, a number way higher than expected. To find out why, tune in to Hoarders on Monday at 8-7 Central on A&E. 
A new bill in the Texas legislature would mandate that landlords inform renters about the flood risks of their buildings, or they could just save time and move all of Houston about 100 miles inland. And lastly, Idaho's gray wolf population is currently estimated at 1,556, but a new bill seeks to kill off over a thousand of them to bring that population in check, because the last thing you want is for a state to have more wolves than people. In these strange and unprecedented times where hygiene is more important than ever, do you wish everyone around you were sneezing? If so, pollen is for you. As people get vaccinated and the CDC loosens mask guidelines, pollen is the perfect way to get some watery eyes and runny noses to fill the air right back up with germs. And if you don't want to go outside, don't worry, because as long as you crack your window open, the pollen will come right back at you. Talk about convenient! Pollen, because even plants get horny after a year of social distancing. Welcome back to the Sweaty Penguin bonus episode. I'm here with Christian Alberga and Matt Gratkow. Christian and Matt, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having us again. Thank you. So as you know, for bonus episodes, we have uh, Christian and Matt will each get a chance to pick a past episode to discuss. Uh, this week, we're doing Christian's pick. And Christian, would you like to tell us the episode you chose? Um, yeah, I chose International Accountability. I think it was a really good episode and I think we'll have a lot of interesting things to say because there's obviously, you know, a huge international political element to it. Absolutely. And do you want to tell us a little bit about your first impressions coming away from the episode? Um, yeah, I mean, I thought it was it was a really good episode. I thought um, the point that you made um, when we were talking about just how, you know, you can use basically like carrots and sticks. And we're talking about how you could like punish countries that don't comply. But then you, you know, suggested, you know, why don't we just give benefits to the countries that do comply? And I think that uh, was a very interesting um, way to put it. And, you know, we mentioned tying things like trade to, um, you know, the accountability for, you know, greenhouse gas emissions. And so um, I just thought there were a really cool, you know, policy ideas going on. I'm glad you brought that up because that was one of the most memorable parts of an interview I've ever had on the podcast where she was talking for a while about sanctions and how to punish countries. And obviously Dr. Park has some really interesting research, but at a certain point I was like, can we reward countries that do good things? And uh, I think that led to a really interesting bit of that interview. So I'm glad you picked up on that. Matt, what were your uh, initial takeaways from the episode? Yeah, I share much of uh, Christian's thoughts, but I, I thought Dr. Park brought a lot of good points. Um, I think I was just really uh, in awe and also in fear of some of the complexity of it all, because I think that we talk a lot about, um, or at least you both talked a lot about the ways that, you know, sanctions can be done and the way that accountability is very difficult to manage. And sometimes even internal accountability is the only way to do that. And I kept thinking, well, what about countries that don't even have internal accountability measures? Um, and so I think there's just so many little levels of complexity that uh, when you know, Dr. Park kind of boiled down to, yeah, you can almost just come down to the only true measure that we have is just saying on the international space, this country did really, really well. And this country did really, really poorly. Uh, reputationally, let's see where this gets us. Uh, and I thought that kind of dynamic is very fascinating when we're talking about international issues that 
um, increasingly the world is becoming more and more, uh, there's much more need for international accountability and the issues that we're facing. Um, and I think it's incredibly complex and incredibly dynamic. And hopefully uh, we can start to talk about some of those things today too. Absolutely. I was excited uh, when you guys picked this episode because you're both very smart, very well-spoken, very uh, politically engaged. And to talk about this episode, which is one of those where you come away like, okay, we, we have ideas, but is anything going to actually work? It's, it's a really tough one. Um, so I'm really excited to explore this with the both of you. I want to zoom back just a little bit because I think draped over this topic of international accountability, there's sort of a very interesting political divide when it comes to global foreign policy, which doesn't really line up with the liberal conservative divide. I think there's a lot of people who feel like we need to prioritize what we're doing in our own country. Don't worry about other countries. Don't try to cooperate with them. There's even the theory that like international politics is a zero-sum game where the only way you win is if someone else loses. Then there's the more globalized approach where countries cooperate with each other, countries try to work together, that you can uh, do things that have a mutual benefit. And then there's also more of an imperialist idea where you people might want to put their country's ideals onto other countries. But I don't think any of those really line up with anyone's views, liberal versus conservative. So I was curious to hear your thoughts on that, if you feel like you fall in a particular part of that spectrum and why maybe people view global politics so differently than domestic politics? Yeah, that's a tough question, but I'll, I'll try to take a stab at it. I think I, I generally push back on two main principles. One is that imperialism and, and colonialism are necessarily good. In the other sense, uh, I think the other one that I push back on is that international politics are a zero-sum game and that you know one country wins and another loses. Because I think in any period in history, frankly, except for the colonial period, you could say that looking back 20 years, overall, the world is in a better spot than where it was 20 years prior. And I think that includes the fact that, you know, that necessarily means that it isn't a zero-sum game. And at least that's true for the last, let's say, 500 years or so. And generally, I think that, you know, when you think about the way that international politics do play out and the way that international uh, trade needs to happen, I tend to think in general, you know, there's countries that have a lot to gain from one another almost universally. And I think globalism in general is, is a really good thing to have with the understanding that countries need to be able to support themselves and can't completely sell out and sell all their resources just because uh, short-term gains don't necessarily mean long-term success. Yeah, I think it's interesting because, uh, you know, obviously the nature of international politics is very different from domestic. That on at least the base level, you know, every country that's signing on to the Paris Climate Agreement is acknowledging that there are detrimental effects to, um, you know, the amount of greenhouse gases we're emitting into the atmosphere. And so there, there is that kind of broad acceptance amongst every um, nation. But, you know, when it comes to like, okay, how we're going to solve it, it's like the grievances make sense on each side in terms of, you know, when the U.S. says, okay, India and China, you guys are, you know, you're ramping up your greenhouse gas emissions a lot. You need to like, you know, you need to take that down. You know, it's very reasonable for people in India 
to think, well, you know, the U.S. got to pollute so much for a century and a half, and now we are just, you know, coming up. And, may, you know, we should, like, why, why does it have to be on us? Why shouldn't it be on the U.S. and Europe that kind of, you know, made all their wealth, getting all um, this industrial production coming up? So, yeah, it, it's just definitely a different nature, and it's going to be, um, you know, people are going to be aligned to their countries and they're going to feel loyalty to their home. And it's it's very hard for like citizens to like really think about how things affect people halfway across the world. So, you know, it's, def- it's definitely an extremely complicated problem, which I think we can all agree on. And I'm glad we could hear your uh, takes on that off the bat, because I think it does shape how we talk about this issue overall. Um, I want to make clear, I was really just trying to lay out some of the different uh, theories that are out there. I wasn't trying to say specifically that one is that like all of them are good or something. I certainly don't agree with all of them. But I think what I've found talking about international environment, I mean, every environmental issue is an international issue because pollutants spread, climate change is global. And that's why it can be tough to come at it from anything other than a globalized, we need to help each other out perspective, because regardless of how you might feel about other foreign policy topics, the environment does affect everyone. Every country's actions affect every other country's actions. And so I think that was a big part of why international accountability was important to talk about and made sense to talk about on an environmental podcast. So Kristen, you mentioned the Paris Accord, and that came up in the episode a little bit. That and most other global environmental treaties take a very broad approach where you try to get every country on board, no matter what that means. Maybe we got to shoot for something less ambitious if we have to do it. We have less accountability mechanisms if we have to do it. Do you feel like that's the right approach. That's kind of the approach that we've always taken. But do you think that makes the most sense? Yes. And I, I do think I have a, a direction I want to take this in. But um, I think it makes sense in, in terms of getting every country to acknowledge the problem and getting everyone on the same page as to what the direction of the solution is. Like, I don't think it's going to be the, the one thing that magically solves it, but getting everyone on the same page to at least then allow the opportunity for countries to hold others accountable because you've acknowledged this same baseline. Like whatever other mechanisms, you know, you try to look at, we can at least say, you're, you're not meeting this standard that we all agreed upon. So I think it's useful in that sense. The point I wanted to, to take this in, which I think um, is interesting, I wasn't mentioned in the podcast, was how much accountability can be driven from the private sector. I think a lot of people look to Larry Fink, who is the CEO of BlackRock. They have almost $9 trillion um, assets under management. And he basically said, we're not going to invest in companies that do not have a clear roadmap of reducing their greenhouse gas emissions and you know becoming like net zero by 2050. And I think that might be more powerful in getting overall greenhouse gas emissions um, reduced than any, you know, one nation might be able to, because I think, you know, between BlackRock and Vanguard, they're going to be like owning 10% of like every company publicly traded in the U.S. And so when you have, 
you know, private sector, like really pushing. And, you know, this could also be, you know, we're not going to invest in this company in India. We're not going to invest in this company in, you know, wherever, which obviously can get, you know, a little bit more controversial. And it works the other way in the sense that, you know, these companies don't really want to miss out on the real growth areas um, in the emerging markets because they're holding this, you know, unrealistic um, environmental standard. But I think, you know, when just thinking about how do we incentivize countries and companies, because obviously most of the greenhouse gas emissions is coming from companies, um, you know, the private sector does have a huge role to play. Christian put it pretty well. Um, and the way that I would phrase it is almost just that getting people and each country to agree to the same set of goals is the most important thing. Because if you're debating over the goals of it all and the premise of it all, then you're going to get nowhere and you're never going to get buy-in from those who disagree with uh, the majority who agrees with the goal. So I think that's the most important part. After that, though, I, I do tend to agree with Christian that you can't understate the power of private sector. Um, I think that one of the complications of the Paris Climate Accord and approaching it that kind of way um, is kind of what Krishna talked about before, where you get countries that are still in industrial stages or developing stages that are going to look to the countries that are post-industrial and say, you know, you polluted for so, so long, and that's how you got where you are to be in a rich position. And, and they'll say, you know, we need to have our chance to do that same thing. And then the rich countries will say, well, look at it now. You know, you have way more population than we ever did. And so on a per person basis, maybe we're still might be contributing more, but overall you're contributing more than we ever did. And so all those dynamics of different stages of development, but at the same time, a realization of the goal that we're at a stage that, you know, maybe is not sustainable and that kind of growth is not sustainable. And, you know, I think countries where there is significant private sector and significant influence uh, can use that kind of power to influence in the right ways, uh, using the power that they have inherently to influence things in the best ways possible that also supports development. So I want to get to this private sector question, because I think on the one hand, you've got some, uh, let's say, good Samaritans out there that have said, I control a large chunk of the economy, I have a lot of investments, and I am going to divest from anything that's emitting greenhouse gases or doesn't have a plan to reduce those emissions. That will motivate some people. I think we can agree that not everyone is motivated purely by environmental concern and has uh, economic motives or other motives. Um, so then you look at how do you hold the private sector accountable? You know, there's obviously like mechanisms, um, you know, when like, you know, the NASDAQ could come out and say, okay, if you're going to be listed on the NASDAQ, you need to meet you know, some kind of environmental standard. I think there's some push for when companies release earnings reports, they also release um, the environmental standard. And there is, there's actually a really interesting question that's kind of being circulated now because um, Goldman Sachs is, has a Supreme Court case with some, one of its clients. But basically the, the question is like, if like a company said, we are committed to um, environmental standards, we're gonna do this and they miss it, can the investors sue them for fraud, basically? Like, can they basically say, um, you know, you, you misled us because we thought we were investing in a sustainable company and you weren't. But, you know, th so there can be, you know, the, 
these kind of like centralized marketplaces like the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ could have rules for the companies that are listed on their exchanges. And so, you know, there are little things like that that can hold, um, you know, them accountable. Obviously, there is the political incentive. You know, if citizens really care about it, they can vote in lawmakers who will, um, you know, make laws accordingly that will, um, you know, put in action. So I think, you know, there's a variety of different things, but, you know, it is obviously hard. Um, but public pressure does, does have a lot of power in, you know, pressuring, I mean, you're seeing all these big tech companies committing to net zero by a certain date. I think a lot of it is, you know, for their image. And I, so I do think there's a lot of power and public pressure. I think one of the best ways is just by giving consumers and the general public the most transparency possible. That can take a number of forms, but I think one of the best ways is that you see right now, there's a ton of companies that are voluntarily submitting, I guess what I'll call corporate governance reports. Uh, which show their environmental impact over the last quarter, you know, overall statistics of, of all these things. And they usually, you know, broadcast them uh, on their own. And, and, you know, of course, these numbers are slightly biased toward what they can uh, show is good, but they're filed, you know, just alongside some of their actual requirement filings by like the SEC and stuff. For instance, public companies are required to put, you know, quarterly earnings reports together and things like that. If the SEC were to just require a number of key metrics um, that wouldn't necessarily punish companies or anything like that. Um, but just by providing consumer transparency, I think it would be much more clear that there's direct incentives to be much more responsible on the social scale, um, whatever that might mean. I think another way is, you know, we talked about those uh, timber licensing companies, and I think that kind of thing can work also in America too. When you look at, for instance, the Better Business Bureau uh, or public health boards um, that come in and rate restaurants, right? When you see an A outside of a restaurant, that's broadcasted because they've gotten that public health certification. If you don't see that A as you go into a restaurant and you look around and you kind of see a little bit of a greasy place, you wonder why they're not broadcasting that they have an A, <laughs> probably because they don't have it. So just because you know these boards exist and because these kinds of filings exist without any sort of direct penalty, the penalty of just publicity and transparency is often enough to actually create noticeable change. Um, I think that when that's on the minds of people and when that kind of thing is available to the public on a set consistent criteria, people can actually use that kind of thing to influence real change. Yeah, just jumping off of what Matt said, I think the, you know, if the SEC just made a requirement that you release, you know, certain environmental standards, that could have a meaningful effect because you think of these large capital allocators like the California um, Teachers Retirement Fund, which is one of the largest pension funds in the country. They could say, um, we don't want to invest in companies that don't, don't have at least this standard, or they can at least say, you know, 95% of our portfolio has to, you know, be a part of this environmental standard. And when these big investment allocators or like endowments and things like that make decisions like that, that can completely, you know, alter, you know, where, um, capital is shifted. So, you know, more transparency, I, I agree, can definitely influence things. I remember back a long time ago when I first took intro economics, one of the like 10 principles of microeconomics was consumers have full information about the products on the market that they're comparing between. And that's obviously not true, but that's one of the principles to 
uh, what a true free market would be. So I think it's interesting in talking about creating transparency. Obviously, there's even uh, governmental efforts to create transparency. I know when we did our fast fashion episode, we saw that there were states that were looking at creating regulations to say, uh, you need to tell us where like what's going on in these factories that you're subcontracting to in countries like Bangladesh that have had a lot of human rights violations. And that that's even as a regulation sort of trying to create uh, more of a free market. So that's that's a really interesting point. I want to go off what Matt was saying with with certifications, because we did an episode on that too. And Dr. Park also mentioned this in the interview where currently you've got some of the more established certifications. We talked about USDA organic, we talked about fair trade, and those have some issues within themselves. But you also have companies will create their own certifications uh, and you have just a ton of certifying bodies. So you can kind of get a certification from anyone. And as a consumer, you don't quite know what means something and what doesn't, especially now where like you can put all natural on a product and that means nothing. (laughs) So as much as a certification scheme seems like a way to give consumers that information they need to make an informed decision. What do you see that would need to happen to actually make that a reality? Yeah, good question. Um, I think it just might have to come from the public sector. You know, it has to come from um, the government itself and and the federal government actually, because when you look at, you know, a, a LEED certified building, sure, that means something to the few institutions that, you know, go and, and, pay for that kind of certification process and that's on their mind. But in actuality, you have to kind of wonder, like you said, about what that actually means and not to discredit lead in any way. I I generally think that's actually a decent certification. But I think it's really, really important that we recognize the power of federal versus privatized uh, certification bodies and the fact that like the Better Business Bureau, when they are certifying a company is, you know, uh, A rated or, or I don't remember exactly their standards, but that means something, you know. Um, And I tend to think that there is a direct correlation between the governance of the the certification body and the actual standard to which it's held and and the amount of power that that kind of actually has. Um, So I think that kind of thing coming from a government organization could actually have real true impact. Well said. I want to ask your guys' thoughts on sanctions because I think they're obviously a bigger player in trade, not so much used for environmental stuff. And I'm just curious to hear if you think that's an effective accountability measure or not. I think that, you know, you draw in like a huge geopolitical element um, that if the U.S. is, you know, restricting foreign aid or investment or applying sanctions to a country for not following certain guidelines, you know, that might be an opportunity for, you know, the U.S.'s biggest adversary on the global stage, China, to then come in and say, actually, we're if the U.S. is stepping out, we're going to come in with investment for you. And so um, I think, you know, this this would have been a different story 10 years ago. But right now we, you know, China is such a formidable force. And, you know, while they are in some ways ahead of the U.S. in clean energy, um, you know, technology and innovation, some ways they're, you know, far behind the U.S. And so, you know, it's really hard to play that geopolitical game because, you know, allies 
um, and trade relationships go like much deeper than just, um, you know, a politician to a politician or, you know, who likes who in the moment. So it's tough. And then obviously, you know, you, you don't want to get into like a major trade war over the environment amongst major countries. And then if it's, you know, if you start talking about putting um, sanctions on smaller countries, then you, you know, you're getting into a lot more of the imperialist talk because it's, you know, it's a lot harder for the smaller countries to um, meet certain standards. So it is tricky. I just think, I think baking it into trade agreements makes sense to me because, you know, if you violate a trade agreement, there are provisions for um, what those consequences are. And so, and once it's in a trade deal, then like, you know, you know, a judge can rule on it. So I think that is the way to go rather than just, you know, slapping on sanctions willy nilly. I think both countries have to come to some kind of agreement um, to hold each other accountable. And I think agreements like that will, you know, first have to come from like a US, Europe or like a EU, UK kind of thing, and then spread to more countries. Yeah, no, I think that's really well put. Um, I agree that the formalized agreements between countries have to have some dynamic of these kinds of sanctions written in so that they can be expected and credible. Um, because I think one of the biggest problems with sanctions on the international level is that they're implicit uh, in the sense that, you know, they're almost uh, this idea that you could be sanctioned if you don't follow and they're not followed through on anyway, uh, even when they are stated, right? Because there are a hundred different dimensions, just going to this US-China example, where you could say that the US should sanction China if you're just looking at this dimension in a vacuum, right? But when you look at it on the whole, these kinds of sanctions have much more broad and, and widespread impact on the relations between the nations. And so if they're written into some kind of agreement that exists between the two countries, then the impact of them is not unexpected. It's also very clear. It's, it's very formalized in a way that, you know, this is agreed upon and this is a, an expectation that we can all see is going to become reality if these things are violated. And so I think that's really, really important because otherwise just kind of going back to the international organizational level, like the UN isn't in a place to actually put in sanctions against any one nation or another. I mean, you even think about, and maybe this is going a little off track too, but international accountability on the sake of coronavirus. And now there's questions about the uh, international accountability, frankly, of the World Health Organization and whether they've done a good enough job investigating the origins of COVID. And so even these organizations have their own allegiances and, and incentives internally and so they, these kinds of um, sanctions just have to be explicit, written into agreements between countries so that they can be expected and actually credible when these kinds of uh, agreements are violated. We could go on and on, but I will leave it there. Christian and Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I really thank enjoyed you. it. Yeah, me too. This wraps up this week's bonus episode of The Sweaty Penguin. Remember, you can get a shout-out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Podcast Addict. That helps boost us in their algorithms. You can also get a shout-out by joining our Patreon. And not just a shout-out, but merch, bonus content, even a chance to win a signed book from one of our experts. Head to patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin to unlock all that cool stuff and help grow the show. That's Patreon dot com slash the sweaty penguin thank you so much for listening and i'll see you next week
Today's episode was written by Ethan Brown, edited by Frank Hernandez, and produced by Ethan Brown, Shannon Damiano, Frank Hernandez, and Caroline Kale. Our ads were voiced by Frank Hernandez, and our music was composed by Brett Saka. Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons, Lawrence Harris and Brownies Central.